Here's My Story is brought to you in part by Art and Soul Tattoo and Gallery. Located in the heart of historic New Glarus, Wisconsin, every guest at Art and Soul is treated to an experience of fantastic customer service and care, from free consultation to completion of your tattoo or piercing. Come in and experience the Art and Soul difference. A welcoming atmosphere awaits you with professional and personal style. They are the premier tattooism destination with plenty to see and do in historic New Glarus. Owner and artist Beth is doing great things in her area with Drank the Paint, Strength and Stories. Beth will be donating up to three hours of tattooing a month to those who share their stories of strength and hope. Her battle with Lyme disease has changed and inspired her as an artist to giving back to others as a way to inspire, heal, and connect others that are battling life's tough stuff, like chronic illness, abuse, and trauma. Be sure to follow Drank the Paint and Art and Soul Tattoo and Gallery on all social media platforms today. Here's my story may contain adult language and adult content not suitable for a younger audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Here's My Story. Thank you to all who've taken the time to listen to the first three episodes of Stacy, Angie, and Scott. With more on the way, I hope you enjoy hearing all the stories as much as I enjoy being the voice for them. It's taken me a bit longer to get this episode out than I like, but there was definitely a lot more work involved this time around. Lots more research, emails back and forth, as well as a lengthy recorded phone interview that I went back through several times to get information and put it all together. But I appreciate your patience, and I think the wait was well worth it. So far outside of the United States, I've had listeners in the UK, Canada, Saudi Arabia, Puerto Rico, Nigeria, the Philippines, Germany, the Bahamas, and Australia. It's crazy for me to think that I've reached so far and wide off of a fluke idea about sharing other people's stories, but I want to reach more. I'm really trying to make a name for myself on Twitter especially, but it's hard. So if you follow me, please take a second to like and retweet anything that I post. Also, share the story with anyone who you think may be interested in the show or even sharing their story. So please listen at the end of the show where I tell you all the places you can find me, and you can also check the show notes for any information provided in the show. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen especially Apple Podcasts, that purple icon on your fancy iPhones, in which I did get a new five-star review from Jin017. I say Jin and not Gin because I'm pretty sure I know who this may be, and they have an episode of their own coming up after this one, actually. But anyway, it reads, Great. It is showing you that you aren't by yourself and feeling the way that you do. It's stories from normal people, and while there hasn't been a lot, I feel a small connection with each story. Thank you, Jen, for that review. I'm looking forward to sharing your story, if I am in fact correct, on the next show. But more details on that later. You can also support the show financially at patreon.com slash heresmystorypod. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. And if things ever take off over there at Patreon, I'll have exclusive bonus material for those who donate. I'm not sure what yet, but hey. Maybe I'll have some outtakes, which, believe me, there are plenty. 
Patreon member-only Q&A sessions, ad-free episodes, or maybe I'll send some autographed pictures of my pets. I don't know. And finally, one last thing before we get started. I want to give a couple shout-outs to two of my friends, Michael and Bill. I know both Michael and Bill solely because of our love for the Chicago Cubs. We have a very close-knit Cubs family online, and it's probably the number one B reason why I haven't abandoned Facebook altogether. One A being to post about the podcast, of course. But although I don't know the specifics, I know Michael, who is a co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, has had some shit going down lately, and I wanted to extend whatever it is you want to send his way, whether you're a thoughts and prayers kind of person, or a positive vibes person. It's all welcomed, I'm sure. Michael, I hope things are good, and I look forward to hearing some positive news in the near future. And my favorite OK Boomer, Bill. Unfortunately, Bill lost his mother recently, something that I cannot even fathom. So again, whatever it is you have for Bill, please send it his way. All the prayers and vibes that you can muster. Bill is an amazing guy, and I know he's listening. And to show respect for Bill and his entire family, here's a moment of silence before I start today's episode. In honor of his mother. Love you, Bill. Today's story is a special one. Not only is it the first story I've done of someone that I don't know personally, it's also someone who you could easily consider famous. Famous for the wrong reasons. But nonetheless, it's hard to find anyone who loves the true crime genre who doesn't know the name Kathy Kleiner. I reached out to Kathy on Twitter just a few weeks ago with the intent of never getting a response. I mean, who am I? And what is this brand new pissant little podcast going to do for her, right? However, to my amazement, within just a couple hours, she replied with her interest on being featured on the show, with a story being submitted just days later. Little did I know how shocked I was going to be upon receiving her story. Being a survivor of Ted Bundy is just one chapter in a book of many adversities that she's endured during her time on this earth, making it again very clear that people hold on to much more than you could ever imagine. For obvious reasons, her fame, if you will, is attributed to a monster for what he put her and countless other women through, but when you take a deeper dive into her life, the attack only scratches the surface of what has molded her into the woman that she is today. On November 24th, 1946, in Burlington, Vermont. Eleanor Louise Cowell gave birth to a baby boy that she would name Theodore Robert Cowell, better known today as Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy would become one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. Bundy is known for kidnapping, raping, and murdering numerous young women in the 1970s and maybe even earlier. Ted Bundy has openly confessed to 30 homicides in seven states, but the actual number is unknown and could be much higher. Bundy has become a true crime fan obsession, especially over the last few years, being showcased in such shows as Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, and the Netflix smash Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, as well as countless numbers of B-rate movies, documentaries, TV specials, and books. 
Bundy was, and still to this day, is widely regarded as being very handsome and charismatic, which enabled him to manipulate and lure many of his victims. While approaching many of them in public places, faking injury, or impersonating a figure of authority, then, when given a chance, he would knock them out, take them to a secluded area to rape and kill them. He was also known to revisit the crime scenes to perform sexual acts with the decomposing bodies until decomposition made it no longer an option to do so. At minimum, 12 of his victims were subject to decapitation, that some were even kept as trophies in his apartment. Though his earliest documented homicide was in 1974, it is circumstantially suggested that he may have a connection to 8-year-old Anne-Marie Burr, who was abducted and killed in Tacoma, Washington in 1961, when he would have been just 14 years old. What we are here to focus on today, however, takes place in 1978. On the morning of January 8, 1978, Bundy arrived in Tallahassee, Florida, and under the alias Chris Hagen, rented a room at a Holiday Inn near the Florida State University campus. Though Bundy claims he made it to Florida with the plan to find employment and refrain from any further criminal activity, the one application that he submitted was abandoned once he was asked to provide proper identification. He then quickly reverted back to his old habits of stealing women's wallets left in shopping carts and shoplifting. One week after arriving in Tallahassee, is where the subject of today's story begins. Margaret Bowman, Lisa Levy, Karen Chandler, and Kathy Kleiner were brutally attacked at the Chi Omega sorority house where he killed two of those women. Karen and Kathy survived the attack. Kleiner has been known to attribute her survival to the headlights of a car lighting up the room, causing Bundy to flee. But even after that, Bundy immediately made his way a mere eight blocks and claimed his next victim, though not killing her, left her with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dancing career. But let's go back to the sorority house and our subject of today's story. Today, my name is Kathy, and here's my story. I was born in Miami, Florida. My father was English, had jet black hair, always smoked cigars, and was a loving father. And my mother, born in Key West, was Cuban. We lived there until I was about 10 or 12. My father died when I was 5, however, at the age of 32 after suffering three heart attacks. I was young and didn't really understand. I just knew he was in the hospital and daddy just didn't come home one day. Being so young, all I really knew was that Daddy went away. It was hard, but that was my new reality. But I got used to it. Daddy just wasn't there anymore. About a year and a half later, when I was seven, my mother remarried. My stepfather was a big, sweet, handsome German man named Harry, who I always referred to as Dad, and Will going forward. He would go on to adopt my sister and I. My brother, however, who was 14 at the time, did not want to be adopted and wanted to keep our father's name. In sixth grade, at the age of 13, while living in Fort Lauderdale, I was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus, 
a serious form of lupus that attacks the body's organs. In my case, it was my kidney. For months and months, I was so tired that during recess, I would sit next to the teacher on a bench and not want to play, and I would come home from school and just go to bed and go to sleep. My mother noticed that I had a low-grade fever that persisted for some time, as well as rosy cheeks, which is a symptom of lupus. So she took me to a pediatrician, who wasn't sure what was wrong with me, but said we needed to see a specialist right away. We went to see a specialist in Miami, known as a rheumatologist. He was also unsure of what I had, but admitted me to the hospital, which was during the summer between 6th and 7th grade. Lupus was not common at the time, plus with my age, they didn't know what to look for. I was in the hospital for three months, and continued to get worse and worse. They told my parents that as things were progressing and not knowing exactly what it was that I had, that I probably wouldn't make it through the year. Of course, they never told me that. I just knew that I was sick. I was never alone, though. My mom, my dad, or my sister always had a bed in the hospital with me. I was never alone at night. At the end of three months, my parents were given the option to try an experimental chemotherapy they thought may work, but couldn't guarantee. My parents agreed, and I was given the chemotherapy at the beginning of my seventh grade. I would travel from Fort Lauderdale to Miami to get the chemo, and the chemo caused me to lose all my hair. I was homebound and homeschooled. It was a very long seventh grade. I often saw my friends outside playing, but they would never come to see me. I mean, why would they come see me while I was sick inside, while they could be outside playing? My parents worked in Miami, so I was alone a lot. They got me a dog to keep me company. I had a homebound teacher who would come every two weeks. She'd give me homework, which I would do the next day, and then have nothing else to do. So I'd watch TV and let the time pass as best as I could. I was finally able to convince my parents to get me out of the house towards the end of the summer. I convinced them to let me go to church, just one time. I still had no hair, so I wore my scarf and covered up. We sat in the back of the church so I wouldn't be exposed to anyone or anyone exposed to me. My immune system was so weak that they didn't want anyone around me to get me sick. So we went to church and went afterwards to get ice cream and went right home after that. And about a week later, I came down with shingles. That one outing away from the house, just that one time, and I contracted shingles. It was the first time in almost a year that I had been out of the house. The shingles were on the side of my face and on my neck, which I still have scars from today. It is in remission, but I do get episodes where it flares up. It affects my joints, I take a lot of naps, and I'm always tired. When I went into high school, I couldn't go out and exercise or any of that. So I went into theater, and it was the best thing I ever did. I didn't have to be that little sick kid when I was acting. I could be anything that I wanted. I was in theater all four years, which is also where I met my current husband, but more about that later. I graduated high school in the spring of 1976, and in the fall of 1976, I started at Florida State University. I chose FSU because a lot of my friends went there, and you always want to go where your friends are. It killed my mom that I went there. She wanted me to go next door to the community college. She had a lot of angst over it, but I enjoyed the freedom 
and I was going to do it. I moved into the dorms on campus, and I went through Rush, and eventually ended up pledging the Chi Omega sorority. I was initiated as a sister in the spring of 1977. In the fall of 1977, I moved into the Chi Omega sorority house. My parents felt that living in the sorority house would be much safer than living in a dorm on campus. In January 1978, I was attacked by Ted Bundy. He bludgeoned me with a log he picked up from a pile of firewood, the same log he used to kill two of my sorority sisters. He beat my face so severe that my jaw was shattered and barely attached to my jawbone. My cheek was ripped open to expose the inside of my mouth. I bit my tongue almost off, and I also received severe lacerations to my neck and shoulder. To repair my mouth, metal pins were inserted into each of my jawbones. My chin was so badly shattered that wire was used to wrap around the bone to keep it together while it healed. My teeth were wired shut for ten weeks. They could not stitch my tongue, so it was just left to heal with time. My cheek was sutured shut, which left me with a terrible scar, and I do not have feeling on that side of my face. I suffer from severe TMJ, which caused me to have several surgeries over the years. My last one was two years ago. Since my attack in January 1978, I have not been contacted by any Chi Omega sister. After the attack, I was in the hospital, alone in a room with a guard at my door, because at that time, they didn't know who the attacker was. There were so many people in that room that initially whenever any of my sorority sisters came to try and visit, my mom and dad would tell them that I was healing and they didn't want to push having visitors right now. They were then encouraged not to come and see me. After the attack, I went home to Miami, and the Chi Omega sisters were told that they shouldn't keep in contact with me because I was not the best association with the sorority because of Bundy. I was sad, I was hurt, and didn't understand it. I would sit at the kitchen table, mouth wired shut, talking through my teeth, and I would call the sorority and ask to speak to someone and end up leaving a message, and no one would ever call me back. Then I'd wait a few days and try again. My mom eventually said, they have the messages, when they get them, they will get back to you. But no one ever did. In their defense, they were dealing with their own trauma and trying to move on in their lives too, which I can understand to a point, but it's also hard because they were my sorority sisters, and they were supposed to be there for me. The attack not only affected me physically, but affected me emotionally as well. I felt uncomfortable around unfamiliar men, and it's not that I thought that every man was going to attack me, but I was uncomfortable around them because I didn't know. So after I got my jaw opened back up from the attack, I went to a lumber yard in Miami not far from home, and I worked there for a little over a month as a cashier, and only once was there a time where someone made me feel so uncomfortable I was unable to do my job, so I hid behind the counter. But the people I worked with knew me, and they knew what I was going through and were very supportive. But after a month or two, I left that job. Within six months of the attack, I was married which ended in divorce. We had met in 1976 in a small church group for socialization where we would just hang out and have fun. There wasn't a lot of one-on-one -on -one dating. We didn't connect that much. We were just part of the group. 
But then at some point in 1977, we did start dating. I met his parents, and we became boyfriend and girlfriend. So in 1978, after I was attacked, six months later, we were married. I just kind of followed suit with my mom. She picked out my dress and all that. I wish I could have stood up for myself at the time, but six months after such an attack, I don't think it mattered who I would have married at the time. I still do, to this day, have a great relationship with my ex-in-laws. When diagnosed with lupus, I was told that I should not have children due to possible complications with the lupus. Today, I have Michael, my healthy son, who was two at the time of the divorce. After the divorce, I was a single mother for five years. Then, in 1989, I was married again to a very good friend from high school, Scott, who, as I mentioned before, I met while in theater in high school. We had never dated then. We just reconnected years later. After Scott and I were married, I took a job as a teller in a small bank in South Florida. One day while I was working, a gentleman came into the bank. He caught everyone's eye because our typical clientele were older people, so a younger man coming in stood out. He went to the desk looking like he was filling out paperwork, looking around, then he left. A couple days later, I went to lunch, and as I was coming back down the stairs to relieve another teller for their lunch, and I was walking down, I saw a line of people, and I saw him again. I was the next teller available, and he was the next customer. He came to my window. He had a small leather pouch he put up on the counter. There was a gun in it. He handed me a note, but I cannot remember for the life of me what the note said. So I opened the drawer and started grabbing money out. And as I'm doing this, I'm facing the lobby, and he was facing me, which meant he was facing the drive through window. And as this was happening, one of the other tellers had called the police. And when the police pulled up, they came in through the drive through And when he saw them, he grabbed his gun, and he ran. The bank closed for the rest of the day, so after taking the rest of the afternoon off, I returned to work the next day. I figured, where was the safest place to be but a bank that was robbed the day before? I ended up working there for a few years. But after that, I then got a job at a hospital. Because my lupus required me to be hospitalized so young and the trauma of Bundy's attack, it left me with a terrible fear of hospitals. I hated hospitals. To help reach beyond this fear, I got a job in a hospital where I enjoyed working for 18 years. It ended up being one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. And I only did it to face my fear and to be able to walk into a hospital without being afraid. At the age of 34, I was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. It was at a routine annual exam, and my doctor had found it. My husband had left the day of my diagnosis for Finland for work, so I waited until he came back three to four weeks later to tell him. And in that time, the tumor had grown from the size of my pinky nail to the size of my thumb. I ended up having to have a radical mastectomy. Again, I was given chemotherapy and lost my hair. The chemo treatments lasted over 11 months, and it took several surgeries to complete the reconstruction process. After years of trying to have a baby, Scott and I were devastated when I had two miscarriages within two years, both in the second trimester. Sadly, we've never been able to conceive. In 2005, we were living in New Orleans and went through Hurricane Katrina. 
My husband was a professor, and he always loved New Orleans, so when a position opened up in his field, we made the decision to move there in 2004. We originally wanted to wait it out, but decided at the last minute to go to Texas and stay with my sister for a week, and then we went to Nashville for two weeks and stayed with my son. Then we went to North Carolina and stayed there for a couple of months, where Scott's parents had a cabin that we stayed in. We left in August and didn't come back home until the end of October. We couldn't get anywhere. We kept hearing stories of friends dying, and then seeing all the standing water and the smell. It was scary, and it broke our hearts. But we still live in New Orleans today, and we've been here for 16 years. All of my life's experiences, on top of being attacked by Bundy, has helped me survive and thrive. I believe there is nothing too difficult to overcome, and nothing can stop me from achieving my dreams. I'm not special, I'm not strong, but if I can do it, so can you. No one is incapable of making it through whatever it is that they're going through. Thank you to everyone again for listening to yet another episode of Here's My Story. I hope you enjoyed hearing and learning more about Kathy's story. One way you can let her know is to go to anchor.fm slash here's my story pod and leave a voice message for her or the other storytellers, Stacy, Angie, and Scott. Let them know what you thought of their stories, give them encouragement going forward, or to simply say something about the show. In doing so, you could be heard on an upcoming episode. No one's left one yet, so I'm looking forward to getting that first one. As always, thank you to everyone who's joined the Here's My Story Pod Facebook group, and don't forget that it's a private group where you can post freely without your friends seeing your posts. It's a safe space where people can talk openly about their problems, and there are nearly 300 people all willing to listen, offer advice and encouragement for whatever it is you may have on your plate. You can also follow me at Here's My Story Pod on Twitter, or Here's My Story Pod on Instagram. I post a lot of pictures of Ivy and Snowball, the official podcat and pod dog of Here's My Story, so that alone's worth the follow, right? I sincerely hope you're enjoying this journey with me, but don't forget that I need your stories, because without you, there is no podcast. So please reach out to those you feel may be interested in listening and possibly submitting. I have received one new story since the last episode that I'm very excited to get started on when the time comes. So if you'd like to submit a story, or if you have any questions, please email me at heresmystorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget you can support the show financially at patreon.com slash heresmystorypod, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And please share this on all social media platforms. I'm looking forward to hearing from as many people as possible to get their stories heard. And finally, it's time to announce the winner of the Escape 60 Peoria Here's my story, Valentine's Day giveaway. This person will receive a free one-hour escape room with their significant other and a couple of their choice to come along for the fun. And the winner is... Tim Brown. Congratulations, Tim. I'll be reaching out to you soon with contact information to claim your prize. Music for the show is always provided by Mike Protich. The song is called Stealing Life by Red Sun Rising and you can find this song everywhere you get your music fix. The song means a lot to me, and as always, I'm honored to use it. That's all I have for now, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for my next episode, where I tell the story of Jennifer. But until then, remember, you are not alone. See you soon.